Welcome to the Building Resilience Podcast, a show where we explore the world of sport and deconstruct the tools and ethos of world-class athletes to create growth and optimize business. I'm Noel Allnut, the CEO of Securo, and today I'll be talking to former professional footballer and inventor Craig Johnston. He shares an amazing story of how he fought his way to success. As a 15-year-old, Craig traveled to England to try out for Middlesbrough Football Club. His parents sold their house to fund his travels, so when he was initially rejected from the team and told to return home, it was life-shattering. Craig shares his views on life and holding yourself to a high standard in order to reach personal heights and also lift up those around you. This show is longer than usual. Craig's had a huge life with so many ups and so many downs and so many stories of resilience. Building Resilience Podcast. Craig Johnson, welcome to the Building Resilience Podcast. How are you? Pretty good, mate. Pretty good. Yeah, yeah. How's yourself? Yeah, I'm really well, thank you. I'm really well. I'm delighted to have you on the show, being a being a fanatic of the Premier League, and I've got so many Liverpool fans and Borough fans back home. Delighted that we're having a conversation. I think that's where I'd like to start the conversation. Um, is going back to how you ended up in Middlesbrough. Uh, playing football there and what your journey was from kicking the ball around the streets of Newcastle in Australia to, to getting into the northeast of England? Oh, mate, that's a long story. <laughs> God, where, where do you start there? Uh, I was an odd kid and my mum was a school teacher and I loved science and maths. Um, and uh, then I fell in love with a game of soccer, which uh, everybody else was playing rugby league and cricket and everything else, surfing and, and what have you. But I fell in love with the game of soccer and there was only one place you could see it and that was on television. Once a week, black and white television, uh, match of the day or one of these. Grandstand. That's it. There you go. There you yeah. go. Anyway, that was on a Monday night on the ABC and I fell in love with the game and I said, Mum, I've figured out what I want to do in life and I was probably about 13. said, what's that, a, a doctor, a scientist, a <laughs> architect? I said, no, I want to be a soccer player. And Mum was like, what? You know, uh, like any mother pl- would. This is 1975. Um, and she said, well, where did you get that idea, you know, to go to England? I said it was on television. And guess what, Mum, guess what? These people get paid for run around playing soccer. And that, that was a new concept to me. Uh, and mum, you know, had all these other things mapped out for me, as did I. You know, I wanted to be an architect, a doctor, you know, something. So mum said, uh, I said, well, I really want to go to England and have a trial. And, and Middlesbrough had trialled over in Australia and Jack Charlton said, I'm looking for the, some good kids. So mum said, well, look, if you come first in science, maths and English, right, in your class, uh, then we'll pay you fair to England. Not thinking that I would take it seriously and, and, and I studied like no kid had ever studied and I did so well, you know, if I didn't come first, came second or third in, in, in each, um, that they, um, they had to do their part of the bargain. So they wrote to Man United, wrote to Chelsea, wrote to Middlesbrough, um, two or three other clubs, and the only letter we got back that was positive was from Middlesbrough and they said, well, yeah, you can come over. I was 15-year-old, so my parents couldn't really afford it, but they had to uphold their end of the bargain. So they, they sold their house to finance my trip uh, to England. 
So famously, when I got there, uh, the famous Jack Charlton, coaches never, um, you know, managers never come to watch the trialists. But for whatever reason, Jack Charlton came to see the trialists playing and we were getting beat three and a little half time. And this is the first day I arrived. I was jet lagged. It was the middle of winter, December. Two days before, I was at Newcastle Beach, <laughs> roasting hot in the middle of December. Now it's snowing. I've got the surfer's hair, the snow and the mud and the stuff's all over my face. And uh, we're getting beaten at 3-0 at half time. And Jack Charlton stormed in the dressing room and he had to go at everybody. He said, useless, rubbish, hopeless. He said, new, where are you from? Uh, I said, I'm from Newcastle, northern New South Wales, Australia. And he said, well, you are the worst footballer I have ever seen in my life with a good Geordie accent like yours. <laughs> he said, now, hop it. But he said, you know, the bad words. And, and, and like I was like, and everybody was shocked. That's how you spoke back then. If you're a yep. tough, you know, north of England uh, World Cup winning manager, you were straight to the point. And he was. He said, now, back to Australia. Um, he said, I don't want to see you again. And I said, what now? It was half time. He said, yeah, now. So I packed my little bag up, um, went out the front door, uh, snow, hail, rain, you know, burst into tears. And then I thought, now what am I going to do? So that's a long story. But that's how it happened. So when you get um, when you when you walk out of that changing room after, like you say, the the probably your first long haul flight all the way across to the UK, and you stood outside there in the rain, what goes through your mind, and, and what are your next steps? Oh, fright and, and horror, and what have I done? Uh, where am I? Uh, how did I get here? Uh, and my legs were bleeding because in the trial, you've got kids from all over. Scotland, England, Wales, Ireland, all came for one spot, you know, uh, as, a, as an apprentice. Um, so uh, this was tough football, and some of the kids were younger than me. Some of them were older than me. So every time I got the ball, they just collected me, which you're allowed to do back then, hurt people. Uh, and so I had blood all over my knees, and I had snow all in my hair, and uh, I was standing on a street corner thinking, where am I and how do I get it? So how did you end up going from that situation into playing for the first team for Middlesbrough? What was the, what was the process you went through in order to, to get there? Well, it, it, it was a problem-solving process because I had a problem. And the problem was Jack Charlton wasn't wrong because I was 15-year-old and compared with all the other kids, I couldn't control the ball, I couldn't pass, I couldn't dribble and I couldn't shoot. I, I actually couldn't play. But I loved the game and I wanted to be able to do what those kids did. And I understood that the problem was that the ball is a perfect object. It doesn't make mistakes. The person using it makes the mistakes. The more you use it, the less mistakes you make. And the other kids from all those places were so much better than me because they spent their life with a soccer ball. Soccer was their world. It was their culture. It was their life. It was their pastime. It was their toy. They didn't have toys. They had a soccer ball. That was the, the family toy. So you asked me how I uh, sort of overcame the Charlton rejection. Well, well, I actually hid in the car park, the Middlesbrough car park from him, every day for about a year, right? He thought I'd gone, but I was hiding from him, cleaning cars and cleaning boots to get money off some of the professionals, 
so I could pay for my fare home. But when everybody uh, went home or they went out to train, I would, in the car park, I would uh, practice uh, control, pass, dribble, shoot, right? And I set up a series of obstacle courses with targets uh, to hit and, and, and obstacles to avoid. So on a daily basis, I would actually practice the fundamentals, the ABCs, you know, um, like you do uh, education. And uh, I had inspiration of things like um, Sir Donald Bradman. Rather than use a, a, a bat and a, and a tennis ball or cricket ball, he used a, a, a stump and he used a golf ball, right? So that then he was really testing his mind and these, um, the link between his brain and the feeling in his hands, right, and, and, and the look, the, the size of the ball, to, uh, to enhance the things you need to be a good batsman. Now, I was doing similar things in the car park. I, uh, I took some, um, some pews from the, the Catholic church across the road, and they didn't need them. They were throwing them out. <laughs> I didn't pinch them. Um, and I would lie them sideways like that in a row based on the 18-yard block, uh, block. So I would pass the ball against it, get it back, pass the ball, pass the ball, pass the ball. And they were about, let's say, five foot long by about a foot high. But I would draw a one foot by one foot um, a target on them. So now I was passing left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, as quick as possible. And every time I missed one, I'd have to go back to the beginning until I did 10 straight. And I did that. Uh, I drew um, a goal in paint on the car park wall. Then I drew a six-yard box. A penalty spot at 12 yards and then 44 yards by 18 yards. So I actually drew a penalty box and, uh, um, and a goal to size. And then I, um, I started chipping the crossbar from 18 yards, the arc of the D. So I had five, one each on the, the corner of the arc of the D, one in the middle and, and then two splitting it. So I had five around the arc of the D circle hitting the crossbar. If I hit four, I'd have to start again. I had to hit five in a row to go onto my left foot, right? And then I did 10 of those each day, left foot, right foot. So control, pass, dribble, shoot. So what I set up, and you'll love this as an internet bloke, what I'd actually set up was a mistake to attempt ratio. Right. And the faster I concentrated and hit the... The, the maximum ratio to attempt. So I was creating data and I would mark it up there with chalk on the wall. I, I'd never heard of the word data, by the way, but I was creating data on a, on a daily basis so I could compare myself with yesterday and I had benchmarks to beat on a daily basis. So basically, I could tell if I was getting faster and more effective at the four core skills on a daily basis. And the thing is, I was, um, I was actually solving the problem of how to be a better footballer because I was fit as a fiddle, right? That, that was never a pro problem. I was a natural athlete, but the ball was my nemesis until I started to learn how to manipulate it against a mistake to attempt ratio. And I told, I'll tell you very quickly how I knew I was getting better because it, would, it, it took me six hours to do all the drills the first couple of times I did them. Mm -hmm. And then two or three months later, I was down to five hours. 
then I was down to four hours. And the funny thing is if, if I was late home, um, back to where I was staying the digs, right, then, then the, 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 they used to have um, baked beans and uh, on toast with melted cheese. And if I was late, well, they'd put the food away and I'd, I'd, I'd miss the food. So my motivation to, uh, to, to getting better uh, scores on a daily basis was the, the baked beans and, and on toast. That's so interesting that you, you decided to find your own algorithm for what success looks like. And for any of our listeners here um, who haven't been to Middlesbrough, a young Australian with a surfer haircut um, in a car park in Middlesbrough is not something that you see running uh, running drills uh, every uh, every day. So that would have been such a unique experience for, for people to see. But that became the essentially the the foundation for your growth and development, understanding where you had to improve and, and using those models to scale and scale and scale. It's it's a fascinating insight into how your brain works. Uh, yeah, well, well, it was called uh, survival mode because I found myself uh, on the other side of the world in the middle of uh, the switch round from summer to winter uh, with no money, uh, with no uh, qualifications whatsoever and being told by one of the experts that I was uh, rubbish and, and, uh, and to hop it. So, so I had to solve the problem in a hurry. And thank goodness there, there was a, a chap there, and you'll know his name well, called Graham Souness. Uh, and there was another guy called Terry Cooper who was the left fullback for uh, England when they win the, won the World Cup. So Middlesbrough had a pretty good team. And some of these older blokes, uh, well, they weren't old then, um, old now, but uh, um, they saw what I was doing and they felt sorry for me. So they would pay me to wash their cars and clean their boots. So I had enough money to uh, eventually save up and go home. Um, so the funny thing is, is that when I was 13 year old in Australia, I, um, I didn't make the rep team for Lake Macquarie. Uh, and Dad was really upset about it, and the coach came and told Dad that I, I wasn't good enough because I was too small and uh, I just wasn't good enough. So that coach was probably right as well. So Dad took me out of Lake Macquarie and put me in the Newcastle competition because he thought it was political, right? But it was probably because the coach really, like Jack Charlton, thought I wasn't good enough. So from that to then 15, and I was 15 when Jack Charlton made his assessment, then Jack Charlton moved on, and then at 17 years and about four months, I became the youngest player ever to play for Middlesbrough uh, in an FA Cup game at, at 17 years, four months. So something remarkable happened within that two-year, two-and-a-half-year time frame um, because the coaches weren't wrong and compared with the other kids. But... Again, if you want to do anything in life, if it's surfing, you know, it's, 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 it's I watch kids surfing out, out, out in front where I live here in Newcastle, and I'm just amazed at the skill of these kids. But they're up there at half past five in the morning, and then they're at half past five in the afternoon, just loving surfing, loving Mother Nature, and working on their craft and their, their skill, which is where the love is, you know, and, and I think a lot of that love the love that I had for a soccer ball, that's not here in our sports anymore. We've lost that love of the ball because there's been too many enticements, uh, especially online enticements, for kids these days to get false 
pies like we did growing up, our generation. And uh, I have great talks with, uh, you know, Shane Lee and Brett, Brett Lee and uh, Steve Wall, uh, Nick Farr-Jones about rugby, Peter Sterling uh, about rugby league. And we, we all have the same story. And we say the pressure that the kids have got now is, is so much different to the kind of pressure we had when we had nothing. But we knew what was right and wrong. We knew what was clever. We knew who the bad guys were and the real distractions. Um, but the poor kids don't know that now. There's so much noise and so much falseness that, that, that we've got to get our kids uh, just loving the joy of sport and the code that they've chosen to play more. So, so that's, that's why now and again I do a little podcast. Well, and I really appreciate that you do doing the podcast and, and sharing these stories and, and these insights with us. It's so true around the, uh, around the, the love of the game and, and the sports, etc. There's still grassroots sports happening, but it's among so much more noise than it ever used to be. I remember I'd been in Australia, I'd been out here 14 years almost, and I remember going back home probably four or five years after I'd, le- after, I'd left, um, after I'd left the northeast of England. And the football pitches that used to be packed with people playing jumpers for goalposts and kids just playing out in an evening and, and kicking a ball around just didn't exist anymore. And then you go back five years later and it's even less and it's even less. So hopefully there's a renaissance with that. But at the moment, it's trying to do... You know where they are? I, I didn't mean to interrupt. you know where they are? In front of a computer screen? They're in the bedroom shooting people. Right, with rifles and blowing them up with hand grenades on the other side of the world, right in in uh, the war of Warcraft, whatever it's called, right. That that's what they're doing, and everybody knows that that that's not a good way to go because apart from doing that, they're missing out on on the joy and the fun and the 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 uh, the camaraderie of teamship and team building because that's actually community building as well. So, so this stuff, you understand this stuff is really addictive and it's really fun. And training with a, with a, a boring coach that says, you stand there, you stand there, and this is all about 4-4-2 four, 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 versus this. And the kids are going, what? This is boring. We all know the problem. We've got to get ahead of it by using technology to get kids out in the backyard, in the schoolyard, in the training ground and get back to Mother Nature's highs rather than the false highs and the dopamine and the uh, serotonin, the, the false drugs from, from video games, you know, and that's, that's my passion now and it's a problem. So it's solving that problem and getting those kids to enjoy old-fashioned happiness and joy because it's missing. And, and then from that becomes behavioural habits. And then from that comes, comes crime and, and comes all these other things that are so destructive to, uh, you know, a healthy community and a healthy country. I know I'm whinging. I'm not whinging. I'm saying, look, I had the joy of all these things growing up, but a lot of us old folks did, and we can see what the kids are missing and we want to bring it back. So if you've got any ideas how to help, you've got to let me know. Oh, will do. Yeah, it's uh, it's something I'm really passionate about. Making sure the um, the 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 future of the world and the, and the future of uh, sports is is really um, 
it should be paramount on, on many people's minds, right? Because it is an opportunity to build that community. It's interesting, I have a look around at some of the top performers I know in business. And one of the common themes um, for both men and women is they played team sports. Um, learning to how to work with um, work with people at your age, working how learning how to work with with coaches, with parents. I mean, you'll you'll have known from the working in the northeast of playing football in the northeast of England. There's some passionate parents on the sidelines, right? So that ability to kind of work across all different types of society and people does get lost behind a computer screen, and hopefully we can come out the other side of it. I'll just drill down on that because it's something that's a clear passion to you. To you, And when we look at resilience there, you're talking, what I hear is how resilient is society? Obviously, we've gone through a, a pandemic and we're coming out, hopefully, touch wood, the other side of that now. What are the things you've learned from your life, uh, Craig, where you think that could transcend into something that's fundamentally could change uh, society for, for a better way? I, I think I've just said it. I've just outlined that... Um I think we're heading in the wrong direction, our youth and their behavioural habits, because of the problems with, with online activity, shall we call it, not just that, but, but other things as well, has shaped a new uh, kind of person that's different from the old-fashioned kind of person. It's a different kind of person, and it's, it's less forgiving, it's less resilient, it's less tolerant, it's uh, more selfish it's less teamwork, <laughs> it's less uh, community spirit-minded, it's all driven by money and, and um, I, I want, I want uh, all of this, but I don't want to do any work. And, and, I, and I just notice across the board professionalism has gone out the window, right? When you say uh, you're on the phone with someone and they say, I'm going to do this, 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 and, it, and uh, it'll be there, and then you wait a week, no week, and, and it's not there. That never used to happen. And, and if it did, that person went out of business really quickly, you know. And, and again, I just noticed that standards, you know, that the, the, the personal pride and professional standards and then the organisation you work with and then that industry that you're in, you know, you are upheld at a certain kind of standard and now the standard's dropping because something's dropping, you know, it's, it's care and love and respect and it's uh, uh, selfishness, right, because I think that uh, people's way of lives, and if you look at it, it's nobody's fault in particular. Is it the education department? Is it the politicians? Is it the, the, the horrible TV programming with these, these, these stupid reality games where everybody's... Uh, want, 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 and uh, nobody giving back anything, you know. So there was an old-fashioned culture that manifests itself in what it was to be Australian, mate, and, and I'm struggling to find it, you know, going forward. And it concerns me as an incredibly proud Australian, huh? and I don't say that too often in public because I'm a private person, but I'm worried about where we're headed uh, and it's nobody in particular's fault, but it's all our fault. And, and I think sport is one of the, the theatres that can then start to lift this up and take it back to, you know, to, to where we should be headed as a, as a culture. I've clearly got a bee in my bonnet about uh, the way that 
our society or our culture is currently at the moment. Uh, when we were there, I feel we're here, but this looks really dreadful to me, and I and I can see us heading to a low standard, uh, which is not what we are. Mm. It's the world, in my opinion, needs people with bees in their bonnet about such things as this, and uh, this is part of the the story around how we become more resilient and how we bounce back from from all of these changes in society, but also start understanding really what good looks like. You mentioned the word there, theatre, um, and and looking at a platform. I'd I'd like to go back to when you started playing for Liverpool um, and looking at playing at Anfield there. And maybe there's some um, inspiring stories that for, for your time there and some of the great footballers that you played with that the listeners might get a bit of a G up from and, and go and, and, and look to emulate. Could you share some more around that part of that time of your life? Yeah, yeah I, I, Liverpool was uh, incredible experience, very different to Middlesbrough because different, different, sort of accent, different uh, people. And um, when I got to the club, they just won the European Cup in, um, in, in, uh, in Paris. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was a, a second life for me because that all happened very quickly. Uh, as I said, 17 and a half, I made my debut. But uh, uh, 19 and a half, 20, um, then I became the most expensive player uh, in British football history. So that's five years from, uh, from 15 year old and being the worst player ever. So, uh, again, I was, uh, I was on a, on a, on a high and, um, there were some incredible characters there and most of them Scottish, hardcore Scottish. Uh, I think if they weren't footballers, they'd be, uh, well, one of them would be Braveheart and, uh, his, his name was, uh, uh, uh Graham Souness. What a, what a warrior uh, on and off the field, uh, a real unique personality, Graham. But there was also, uh, as the captain, there was also Kenny Dalgleish, right, who later became captain of the club and then managed the club uh, and won the double, the league and the cup in his first year. And then a chap called Alan Hansen, who was uh, a majestic footballer. And then when he retired, he became the BBC's number one soccer commentator for 20 years, 20 maybe 25 years. So that was the backbone of the team. And they were tough, hard men, right, but gentlemen at the same time. Yeah, they all had this uh, real aura about them, and uh, especially with Graham in the middle, it it frightened people, which is why we were, uh, I think they set the standard for professionalism that all the rest of us, which funny enough were from, from all over the world, the goalkeeper was from Zimbabwe. I'm, I was from Australia. Uh, we had uh, oh, a Dane in Jan Mulby later on. Um, we had Irishmen. We had Welshmen in Ian Rush, uh, Irishmen in um, uh, Ronnie Whelan. So we had a real multi-cultural uh, team. Um, and uh, uh, having... Played there for seven or eight years before I had to retire. Um, I can't remember uh, losing too many games. You know, you could count them on two hands, the amount of games that we actually lost. And uh, even if you, you were uh, down 1-0 at halftime, there, there was never any doubt that you were going to win, you know. And uh, they were real, real 
professional people, just highly professional. Every little thing, you know, uh, that they'd be all over you like a rash, you know, and this is the whole concept of a team spirit. If someone was letting the team down for, you know, maybe giving 99% away from home at, uh, let's say, Norwich, you know, these Scotsmen would be all over that person like a rash, barking at them, and, uh, you know, they wouldn't get back in the team. So it, it was remarkable. And, uh, you know, a lot of the time I couldn't believe that I was so lucky and so privileged to be on the same team as them, you know. And uh, uh, still to this day, it seems like a long time ago, and uh, I feel like I've been lucky enough to have three or four different lives. And when I look back, um, I, I wasn't there for too long. I won five league championships, right? Uh, scored the winning goal in the FA Cup final in 1986, a European Cup final, uh, five charity shields, I think two league cups. Uh, and and uh, like I said, that was in seven years. So if you look at Middlesbrough from 15, and I actually retired at 27. So my career was only, well, professional. Professional. I was, I was uh, seventeen when I turned professional, so I was only ten years a, a player, and I retired at twenty-seven because my sister got sick, and uh, I needed to help uh, with her re- rehabilitation. So I brought her with mum and dad back to Australia, and uh, thinking that she'd get better and I could go back and finish my career, but uh, the poor thing never got better. I'm still alive, but. Uh, uh, she never recovered uh, consciousness, and uh, and then I had to go and get another job. Um, so uh, yeah, poor, poor off, eh? Um, but Middlesbrough was an incredible um, experience, and and so was Liverpool. But I I feel that that was uh, just a practice for what I'm doing now, with trying to work on soccer in this country and use the power of sport to get uh, and help to mould and shape and um, create happiness and joy in kids' lives from Mother's Nature's gifts. That's, that's, what, I, uh, that's what I'm doing now. And I, I've got a sense of love and passion like I had for solving the problems in, in the Middlesbrough car park way back then. You've got an amazing reputation as a problem solver, um, as a tinkerer, as an inventor. Um, what I remember being young and watching the the documentary in the UK, I think it might have been something like Panorama about the uh, about the Predator football boot. And uh, now, when everyone thinks of thinks of uh, predators, uh, when they think of football boot, they think of predators. Could you share more around that story and, and, and what went through your, your, again, going back to that process, that design thinking that, you, that you've had from, from school in, in the mathematics type area that got you to think, actually, maybe there's something different we can do here about a, a piece of sporting goods that's been the same for, for hundreds of years? Yeah. Well, well, the thinking was much, much more uh, focused and to the point. Uh, and, and that was, uh, and I'll explain it to you and you'll get it straight away. Uh, remember when I said that I had a problem 
and that was I couldn't kick the ball straight like the other players. Uh, and it was because of what part of foot on what part of ball to what effect. Bit of top spin, bit of back spin, like a table tennis bat. You know, so, so the key thing was that when I did retire and I started coaching kids, right, I had a, um, a session with them and I explained to the kids, if they want to swerve it, think of their foot as a table tennis bat, you know, their, their boot as a table tennis bat. And they said, well, that's fine, Mr. Johnson. This is down in, down in Sydney, North Shore in Sydney. They said, it's fine, Mr. Johnson, but our, our boots are made of leather, not rubber, and it's raining and it's slippery. <laughs> And I thought those little kids are right. So it really started to uh, lash down. So it was uh, uh, cancelled. And driving home, I thought, no, kids are right. So, and I'd done this before in Middlesbrough anyway. It wasn't a new idea, but they really re triggered it for me. So I went home and I pulled the, uh, the, uh, the skin off a table tennis bat and I put it on my boot and I wrapped elastic band around it. I went back in the backyard and I kicked the ball. And when I kicked the ball, the rubber uh, and the butadine in the rubber uh, squealed like a pig, you know, actually literally like a pig, it squealed uh, on the polyurethane of the ball, right? And I could feel that there was a grip there that leather didn't have. So that was the basis for then, you know, searching patents. This is before the internet and all of that stuff, searching um, patents via lawyers and, and getting all the information I could and then saying, okay, this works. Because over the years, I'd tried stuff like that at Liverpool, at Middlesbrough. I tried stuff like that. You know, I've, I've got some of the, uh, the prototypes in, in the shed here. <laughs> Do you want me to get them? You think about your next question. No, I'll show you. I say, you'll, you'll like them. This is brilliant. For the guests who can't see this on the Zoom call, uh, Craig's just gone to the shed and, and is now showing us some of the original prototypes of the Predator boot. What a. What a treat to see! That's amazing. So that's that that model that you're showing us there. Yeah. So so that was one of the the first ones, uh, and then um, that was a more aggressive uh, model. That one that one there looks very similar to the one the um, the, the David Beckham famously uh, banged in many of the free kicks. Yeah. Well, I've actually got the the Beckham prototype. If you want to see it. I've actually got the one that Alex Ferguson had to sign it off first and he came to see me somewhere and then Beckham, Beckham signed off. Uh, I'll go and get it for you. One sec. Oh, yeah, that'll be awesome. And what we'll do is we'll, uh, we'll put the pictures into the, uh, the show notes uh, for, the, for the viewers because I know there's a lot of uh, big football fans who uh, live and die by uh, the Adidas Predators and everyone wanted to have them on the school uh, School playing fields. Mate, mate, you can tell this one's a bit uh, a bit precious because I've wrapped it in a Liverpool shirt. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! So that was one of the uh, the original. Well, that was the original prototype, and he had to sign off with it. But Alex Alex Ferguson had to sign off first um, before we were allowed to speak to him, and uh, and that was it. So we actually put this on at uh, at the training ground. Um, that's amazing. And do you, you know how you can tell it's a, it's a genuine predator? It's got, uh, you probably can't see it, but in there it's got Johnston written on the actual. So that's how you know it's an actual genuine predator. And the, the stud system, it's got Johnston written on the bottom as well. So uh, people don't know that, but the original moulds, 
were all made because Adidas didn't own the Predator, I did. I owned the patents. Right, okay. So, that sounds like a yeah. very good quiz so, question in the future. Uh, how do you know whether a Predator is legitimate or not? And it's, yeah. it's got the Johnston uh, writing on there. Yeah, it has. It's got the name embedded in the, um, in the rubber, in the rubber. So mate, just, just while I'm there, what do you reckon <laughs> this is? <laughs> what do you reckon this is? Oh, wow. What's that? A, a, a League Cup winner's medal? That's a League Championship medal. Yeah. Being a Newcastle fan, I've never seen one of those before. <laughs> there you go. So, Craig, if we um, if we just move forward from a very uh, an amazing football career, the the Predators then really changed the way that uh, the football boots were, were bought and, and the coolness factor of uh, football boots throughout the world. Um if we look at that from a resiliency perspective and growth perspective and, and that mindset that you've got, how has that then transcended into the other parts of your life? You mentioned earlier that you've had, uh, you feel like you've had three lives. I'd love for you to elaborate a bit more on that with the theme of the, the way that you've, you've transcended between careers and, and, and ideas and, and thoughts. It's, it's, it's really fascinating for the listeners to, to hear that journey and how you've, you, you've woven that into the fabric of your life. <laughs> I think it's woven itself into the fabric <laughs> of my life. Uh, 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 and again, I, I think what, uh, what, what summarised it uh, when I was living in Dublin for quite a while, um, because um, just because I, I didn't want to live in Germany. Um, so I brought the family from Australia and we lived in Dublin and I would fly to um, um, Frankfurt and then drive up to Nuremberg where I worked with Adidas for about six or seven years because basically, as I said, uh, I was uh, running the Predator project and I actually owned the patents. So um, um, a journalist in, um, in Dublin uh, grabbed me from the Guardian, it was, and uh, said, look, we need to go and have a pint of Guinness and need to do a story. And then he said, okay, uh, he said, the big thing that a lot of people don't understand is that uh, you retired at 27. They said, how does a footballer become an inventor? And I said, well, that's your first mistake. I was an inventor that became a footballer. And he went, ah, he said, well, that makes sense, you know, given your story. I said, yes. And, and I, I was in um, Dublin as well because um, uh, they, they had a very clever program, whereas if your income was derived from publishing, which was uh, the predators were a patent, so I, I, could, get, I could live in, in Ireland with very generous uh, tax offerings because, uh, again, in the end of the day, it was publishable, you know, uh, because that's, that's where your income. So it was very clever. And what Apple was there and a whole bunch of uh, high-tech companies had, had actually uh, landed in Ireland at the same time and they were employing the, the kids coming out of college and universities. So it was very clever. And I think Maggie Ta- Thatcher was, was taxing uh, at about 80%, uh, 80, 85%, the high, high owners in, in England. Yep. So that's part of the reason. So it was very clever, but that was a glorious part of my life as well because, um, you know, I was pure inventing. That's what I was doing. You know, and uh, and I loved it because I I uh, re- had to retire at twenty seven because of Faye. Um, and I I basically then 
didn't have any qualifications. So I had to uh, find, you know, new new jobs and uh, ways of making money and, you know, uh, flying around the world and, and discovering what a fascinating world we had. So that's why I've had the three lives, three or four lives. And then I got a bunch of, uh, you know, cancer, uh, really heavy cancer and drug, enough drugs and radiation to kill a horse and uh, really affected me badly. And I thought, oh, I really, really, uh, 60 years old, I really need to get home and leave a legacy uh, uh, before it's too late. So I've spent the last five years at home. And this is probably my fourth life, and I'm I'm, I'm loving it. Uh, even though <laughs> COVID uh, has really uh, uh, knocked us about, floods, fires, the whole thing. Uh, resilience is 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 what's required just to just to stay on an even keel. You know, um, the poor people are around around everywhere. You know, they've had a hiding, and um, like no other time, prob- probably war times, the only time that was as stressful as this. Um, and we're, we're like in the middle of Ukraine, so a lot of us are feeling that as well. You know, so so what's resilience? Well, I was doing it by solving problems, and I hear the word resilience all the time. I think it's a new sort of buzzword, marketing buzzword that wasn't around in my day like the word data wasn't around. Although I was creating data and I was bouncing back from rejection and from having no money and from hiding in a car park and uh, doing jobs I didn't want to do to, to pay my fair home, right? It wasn't that word resilience didn't exist. But You'd laugh in our world there's actually a term called data resilience, so there you go. Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> uh, it's interesting, but I had something called guts and, and, uh, and gumption, and I, had, um, I, I, I was actually a good kid. And I think part of getting on in life is if you're a good kid, people like you and they'll help you. So, so many people helped me through that Middlesbrough period. Uh, Jack Charlton probably helped me by saying I was no good. And then, you know, forcing me, you know, to, to, to do something, which I did, you know, and uh, I had some great people there that, that helped me. So resilience now, I think, is a new buzzword because of the new, let's call them horrors, and I just mentioned them, flood, fire, COVID, that uh, is besieging. That's not to mention then the social media pitfalls and uh, minefields that are out there for these poor, suspecting, unsuspecting kids. You know, I've never been on social media, ever. I'm, I'm, I'm frightened of the thought of it. You know, I can't even handle my own emails and my own opinions, let alone everyone else's in the world, and be judged by them. So, so the key thing is I know for a fact, you know, that, that I've got together with all these other older sporting people. I call them the trailblazers or the tribal elders or Team Australia, it's, it's all the same thing. But the, I've got the group together and we're actually uh, teaching, if you like, a curriculum in the VET coaching program in New South Wales. We're about to, to launch it in a couple of weeks, just so you know. And, and actually, for your show, this is the first time we've said anything to anybody about it being public, but it's actually on the Government New South Wales education website. It's called the Trailblazers. The Trailblazers. I'll have yeah. to make sure um, in the updates we'll, we'll share that information. Indeed, indeed. And, and the Trailblazers is all about the questions you're asking me, but Steve Waugh, 
um, even Adam Goods, you know, the AFL player, yep. Australians of the Year, both of them. Kurt Fernley. Yep. Right, who's become a bit of a legend of all the legends, you know, because of what he does, you know, uh, uh, with no legs, you know. It's, 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 just, it's just remarkable. He does what we do with no legs and better sometimes, you know, uh, remarkable. So these stories need to be told and the kids need to, need to hear them, you know, because I, I think the kids are sick of hearing the words from school teachers and from parents, and, and this is a, a real-world demonstration that we understand that their problems are different. And uh, this new buzzword, resilience, I think has sprung up because of this overwhelming need uh, of information overload so that, that, that people have a compass and a, a, almost a lighthouse to head for, you know, which is the right direction. In our days, we all speak about this. We knew what was right and wrong. We knew what was good and bad. We knew who the bad guys were. Now you don't know who the bad guys are. So it's, it's good old-fashioned common sense uh, and basic fun with sport and Mother Nature because if, if we continue down this spiral of losing kids in sport, we'll lose our community spirit and we'll lose our country spirit. And that, uh, that is, is horrific. Craig Johnson, you mentioned there about leaving a legacy. There is no doubt that you will leave a fundamentally great legacy on this earth. Uh, the projects that you've done and the projects that you're doing now are just fascinating. And um, yeah, it's, it's a huge amount of gratitude from myself for you, for you joining the show today. Um, and I really know that our listeners will get a significant amount of value out of your stories. And hopefully they can go on to tell those stories into other people and become more resilient and bouncing back in society and, uh, and, and get back to, like you say, Mother Nature and the, and the, and the simple good things in life. But on behalf of myself, Afternoon Sport and, uh, and, and all the listeners, I just really want to say thank you so much for, for joining us this afternoon. Uh, thank, thank you very much and all the best thanks for listening to the Building Resilience podcast make sure you hit subscribe or follow wherever you listen so you don't miss future episodes thanks to our guest today Craig Johnson we really appreciate your time and stories thank you to our sponsor Securo if you'd like to know more about me or Securo you can head to Securo.io Securo trust tomorrow this podcast was made by Afternoon Sport Group